Farm Green podcast, episode number three, and I am absolutely thrilled to have our guest this evening, Nicole Atchison from Purist Foods. Uh, Nicole is the CEO, so everything starts and ends with her, which is awesome, but there, it's way more than Nicole, and we're going to get into that. It's a lot of family. There's a lot of decisions made throughout the family members, the board members, uh, and it's just a, it's a great, uh, family owned business that I want, I want you folks to learn more about. So, uh, giddy up, here we go. Nicole Atchison, how are you doing today? Great. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. Really excited to be here. Oh, you are, you are welcome. Thank you. I'm going to give you the first question I give to everybody. Nicole, what is on your mind right now? Yeah, this, it's an interesting question because really when in, in my like life and job, so both in my personal and professional life, supply chain is top of mind all the time and inflation and cost of everything is, is what I'm thinking about a lot lately. Mm-hmm. And I, that affects me both you know, in my job with, with Puris and agriculture and everything, but also at home, just as you're looking at what you're doing with your family and groceries and everything, it's, it's, it's such a different time right now, how all of these things are kind of coalescing and it's, um, yeah, top of mind. Yeah. And, and that's, that's exactly where you, you need to be because this is, this is serious, real stuff. I mean, uh, a lot of the the things that we buy have doubled in price in the last eighteen months. I mean, it's just amazing what um, this pandemic has done to the world. Um, so we'll 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 battle through. We'll struggle through. It'll be okay. But um, but yeah. All right. Now I want to go way back, Nicole. I want you to talk about your childhood and the relationship you had with your father and the things that you were doing in in your family's garage okay yeah absolutely so for those who those of you who don't know purist we're a a plant-based food company that's how we describe ourselves and today that is definitely what we are we're vertically integrated plant-based food company but we have been saying that for about 35 years and 35 years ago we were a far cry from a vertically integrated plant-based plant-based food company and my dad uh, is—he was an egg business major at Iowa State, played football, and in the summers he interned with Asgro and learned how to breed soybeans, cross corn, uh, the whole lot. Grew up in in central Iowa. Both both of my sets of grandparents farmed, and he just grew up, you know, working for Pioneer in the seed corn, and that's what he thought he would do for his job after after college. That he'd go and he'd work in the seed corn industry. And he learned and became passionate about the breeding side of it. So after he graduated from college, him and my mom, just uh, they moved in and had me pretty much right away. And he started working for um, Purina, selling animal, selling feed. And in, on the side, he started breeding soybeans in our basement, in pots. And this is his little pet project that he just enjoyed. He enjoyed the process, enjoyed doing it. And, and it moved from our basement to our garden and we had a handful of soybean lines that we grew out in our garden and my mom uh, learned how to cross and she would cross. And sometimes our babysitter that was babysitting me would come and cross. And this was just normal to me. I didn't realize that this wasn't something that most people did. And pretty soon Perina realized that my dad had this, uh, you know, it wasn't called a side hustle at the time, but essentially he had a side hustle and he was building this kind of 
genetic breeding business while he was working for Purina and selling feed. And he had to make a, a choice at one point, like, is he going to go all in on his dream and go after you know, developing this business or stay the course? And he was doing a good job at Prina and, and he made that bet and he decided to go all in. And so they started, they started off as doing con, uh, contract breeding for other seed providers in the Midwest. And about this time I was probably, I was probably like eight or so. And uh, my job as a key employee, number three, because you have my mom and my dad first, and then you had me yeah. as the eight-year-old, uh, was to was to pick flowers during the cross-pollination process, and then also to travel around the, the country and plant, and actually ride on the planter. So Rick, I see that there's people raising their hand, and I don't know if we're supposed to acknowledge that or not. That I don't know. Um, Liz, is there a question there? No, if anybody has a question, they can put it in the Q&A. Okay. Okay, thank you. Sorry, sorry, Nicole, go right ahead. So you have uh, my dad starting this business, developing genetics, and we have planters. And they're not the planters that most people on the on the call probably have. These are tiny planters. They plant, mm -hmm. at the time I was a kid, we only had, it was two rows, and you wrote on the back. And my job was to dump the individual packets into the planter and go. And so my dad would pull up to this to this organization that was paying him to do breeding work. And his employee comes out, little old eight-year-old, nine-year-old Nicole. And they're like, what in the hell have we gotten ourselves into? Like, who is this guy? He's got a kid. Uh, but then I was pretty good at it. So they, they, got, they trusted me. And over the years, I was a regular. And I, sometimes I would even leave school to go plant. And that was our business for about the first 10 years. Uh, we developed uh, breeding lines. And that's how, that's how we got started. Mm -hmm. And when I went to college, my dad put a breeding plot up in Ames, Iowa, so that I could continue crossing soybeans in the summer, uh, even though I didn't live at home anymore. And so I really spent the first 19 years of my life uh, fully ingrained in the business and, and doing all, you know, in the field all the time. So most people ask, like, are you a farmer? It's like, no, not in the typical sense, because we didn't farm hundreds or thousands of acres. We, we had 10 to 20 acre fields. And they would have thousands of varieties in them. And our job was to was to create the new varieties and using cross cross pollination. And that was our summer job, you know, keep the fields clear of weeds. So lots of hoeing and, and then planting and harvesting. And it was a year round uh, year round team and family effort for sure. And that that was really the first the first decade. Yeah. So let me stop you there just for a moment. So we are all at this point, non-GMO, correct? There's no genetic modif modifications taking place at this point. No. And that's, an, it's a good question because this was during the nineties uh, when, when GMOs were really starting to take off. Mm -hmm. So we had an, we had op multiple opportunities really to, to participate more with, with Monsanto and others at the time. And this was really in the period of mass consolidation of the seed industry. So where a lot of seed groups were getting purchased by Monsanto or others, and there was opportunities where we could have done as well. And my dad really had the philosophy, not that it was inherently bad, but that we people would need choices in the future. And so someone had to kind of maintain, uh, you know, technologies and germplasm that didn't have these unknown entities at the time. At the time, we didn't know what was going to happen. And so he decided not to sell, not to sell out. And we, we kept kind of as independent, kept our heads down and just kept marching forward. 
So that was that was late 90s. I think uh, someone's going to correct me, but I'm not going to get specific here. But I think the GMOs were introduced into the soybeans somewhere around 96, 97 time frame, I believe. Um, so that's that's great that you guys stayed tried and true. Uh, can you share with us today on the size of your genetic pool? I mean, it, it's it's pretty massive, right? Yeah, I think we're, so we still do everything using conventional methods. So today our breeding program isn't fundamentally different from a, from a practice than it was back then. It's just had, you know, 20 more years under its belt or more than that. Geez. When I think about how time, how time passes, I mean, we've been, we've been at it for over 30 years now. So we have a, a thriving germplasm bank in, in soy, corn, and yellow field pea. Yeah. And I think the, you know, something I kind of skipped over was when my dad made the the choice to leave Perina and go all in on his, his thesis, it's funny because it's, it's a lot of the same kind of comments that we hear today in, in his words, where he was kind of just seeing how all the feed was being used. And he's like, someday people are going to need to eat these plants. So we should breed them to a taste great, yield like crazy but focus on the nutritional factors for, for people food, for humans. And so his kind of underlying like methods have always been around uh, the agronomic traits, but also on protein and color and flavor so that they can make excellent bases for food. See, and, and he was doing this in the late in the 90s, 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, so well, I, people were, that's why I kind of mentioned is like, we, we said we were a plant-based food company and in the late 90s, early 2000s, people were like, what is that? Yeah. That's very strange. And I kind of always joke like we were the weird people doing the weird stuff because, um, you know, we had weird, funny little planters and funny little combines and, you know, people in our small town to drive by, like, what, what are you guys doing out there with those strange equipment? But, and then we talk about plant-based food, most plant-based food at the time was awful. So it was just this kind of very odd concept, but um, that was what the the vision was and what i'll give my dad a ton of credit for is that he he set the vision and never was you know distracted from it you know for with all of the naysayers and all of the yeah. ridicule and all of all of that he just kept kept chugging away and he believed that that's what was needed and pushed forward see that that is so hard to do is to stay the course and stay tried and true to your beliefs and you know that this is the way to go. And and by him doing that, time has now caught up with you folks, and you're now, time is proving you correct. This is very important. Our diets need more nutrient-dense food. We need more protein. The livestock industry needs more protein. Everybody needs more protein. So so let's go there for just a moment. Let's, let's swing over to livestock now. So, you know, People might look at Purus and say, you know, Purus wants to do the Beyond Burger or the the Matt, whatever it's called, uh, the high protein, no no meat burger, and meat cannot work in this situation. I disagree. I think I know what you're going to say. Go right ahead and take that. Yeah. So I think there's there's a lot of polarization in the world today in general, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's probably ever a fair assessment of, of what's needed. I think, you know, my, I, I feel very strongly that we need to be addressing our food system holistically, and we need to be thinking about how do we make sustainable food? 
And, and Puris's role in this is not going to be to, to solve all the problems, but how can we support a sustainable food system? Right. And I think that's a very different than sustainable plant-based food system only. And so, you know, when we look at the population of the planet, it's going to be growing until it's projected to grow until about 2050. So what does that mean? Between now and then, we need more food. Mm -hmm. And we need more protein. We need more quality protein. We need more nutritious sources of food that can feed all people, not just wealthy people, but feed all people. And then after that period, population will start to decline. And I think at that point, we can start to get more picky about where the food is coming from and, and rationalize it a little bit better. But in the period from now to then, we need to produce more. And if, if one thing that I do feel strongly is that we can't just do what we've been doing over the past 30 years to make that more food. We've got to, we've got to think more efficiently. How can we use our resources more efficiently? How can we make sure we leave the planet better for our great, great grandkids or whoever, you know, four or five generations from now. And I think that whole system needs to work together. So that means livestock and the feed that they're using is, should be, we should be working to make it more sustainable, but that doesn't mean that it's going to end overnight. And should people eat more plant-based foods? I absolutely think so, because it's a more efficient use of resources. But it needs to be done in a way that works for the whole system and not just a a slice of of individuals. Yeah, and I think what you're really digging down into here is we've got to stop putting Band-Aids on the issues and get to the root cause and work from that point up. And I think if we would figure out, A, I mean, the amount of food that's wasted in, in the world on a daily basis is unbelievable. I think 30% of the food that's prepared is wasted. I mean, that's, that's insanity. And then if you look at the nutrient density side of it, we don't have near the nutrients that we had 25 years ago. So then to maintain that diet, you need to consume more food. Well, how about we make smaller portions that are packed with, with a punch of, of nutrients? And I think that's where where you're discussing here. But what is so amazing to me is how your father had, I mean, he's a pioneer here. I mean, this is a a gentleman who was out at the forefront, uh, you know, kind of like Dave Brandt was at the forefront for regenerative farm. He's out there taking all the hits and all the blows. And and now all of a sudden, uh, gosh, these folks are right. And so how do we all get on board now and, and help with this? So... So has your family always been that, that um, you know, that regenerative or how, you know, how are we going to be good stewards to the planet we live? Have you always, is that how your family raised you and grew and you grew up in? Um, so my, so my dad, it's, it's a really interesting question because I would say the answer to that is, is actually no. Um, because our reason to be wasn't necessarily always thinking with this full systems my dad was really focused on how can we bring tools that enable growers and eaters to make sustainable choices. And our job is to bring innovation and tools to the table, not necessarily to tell everyone what to do. And I think that was a, a one, it was a good approach for the time because we were a very small fish in a very aggressive pond. And yeah. so we had to do a little bit of keeping our head down and building because it would have been very easy just to get kind of stomped out. Um, and, and frankly still is, <laughs> but we also had to make very strategic bets. And, you know, our, my parents bootstrapped our business for the first 25 years of its existence, you know, 
getting enough in the seed company to be able to put up a, a facility in, in Iowa and then getting that going so that we could expand and doing all of that through their own kind of efforts. And so they had to also have a very pragmatic approach on, you know, we, we do what we can, but we have to just kind of keep it alive if we ever want to get to the um, end, to the end system. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so important to, 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 you know, create positivity, to eliminate negativity and, and try to focus in on, on exactly what you're doing. So we've talked a little bit about your father, uh, a little bit about you. Now you have a brother also, uh, he's in, he's in the business here, the family business. So let's talk just a little bit about Tyler. Yeah, so my so my brother, a couple of years younger than me, when we were um, growing up, we were both responsible for different aspects of breeding. So I was soybeans and he was corn. So that's what that that's like. Yep. And our summers were hiring all of our good friends to come be the, the field workers with us. So we got early management skills. And then he went um, went to college and he ended up playing in uh, football and went to the NFL. So he was uh, we're from small town, Iowa. And, you know, my dad, one of those visionary people, he told my brother, he's like, you can play in the NFL if you want to, you just have to work harder than everyone else all the time. And just realize that someone's working harder than you, even if you think you, you are. Yeah. And most of the time it doesn't happen, but it did for, for Tyler. But, and it was crazy. But Nicole, isn't that kind of the theme of your whole uh, raising with your father? I mean, that's how yeah, he drove you guys. Yeah. I mean, that's a hard I, work. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to interrupt you here very long, but when I think back to what how I grew up, I had jobs that and responsibilities at at 14 years old, and I had to make decisions. and And now I can't I can't thank my my parents enough for g giving me. You know, at the time I thought, why are you doing this to me? But today <laughs> it's like, wow, that was quite the path you need to be on to now become CEO of Pure's Foods. So. So please go on. I, I interrupted. I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. So uh, Tyler, he was in the NFL and this is his joke, not mine. He says the NFL for him meant not for long. And so <laughs> he spent a couple seasons in the NFL and then he was cut. Uh, luckily for him, for him, he was on the, the Saints the year they won the Super Bowl. So he had that uh -huh. kind of fun, uh, cherry on top. But when he got cut, he came back and was in Minneapolis because uh, that's where I, where I was living. And he started helping my dad because my, my dad had just bought a plant in Turtle Lake, Wisconsin, that was making soy protein isolate. And this plant was mothballed. It was um, shut down. We, we, we bought it in a, in a risky type debt package, which mm -hmm. probably shouldn't have done. And it was now time to like, how are we going to make this work and not go out of business? And so, so Tyler helped him. We commercialized some soy protein using our soybeans that through our process. And we started slugging it out with the, the big guys in the market. And Tyler is uh, very, he's the CEO of Purist Proteins today. Um, he's in tune with the market and saw what was kind of happening with, with pea protein and went back to my dad and said, dad, you know, those peas that you've been breeding since 1999, like, how are they doing? Do we still have those? And my dad was like, yes, like they're doing great. We got them growing in the South and we, we got them with heat tolerance and protein and they're just great from a like a rotation perspective and why why do you ask and Tyler's like we we're going to make pea protein instead of soy protein and my dad is a huge believer in soy and, and didn't want to do it he said only if you can make it taste great and so that was really our our motto is if we could make pea protein taste 
as good as soy protein, we'd give it a go. And we struggled for a couple of years, but found a, found a product and found product market fit. And from that point on, uh, things started to rapidly change for our business because we found a product that the industry really, really wanted. And our, our challenges went from kind of small scale challenges to massive challenges in yeah. trying to scale supply. And yeah. Tyler, to his uh, massive credit, really shepherded our business through this massive inflection point where we went from um, a, a small family company that could kind of make it work to needing to change and bring people who are smarter than us to the team and can help us grow in, in a meaningful way. Yeah, you guys have such a great outlook on on the way things need to be ran. And you know that even though you got CEO on your door, that doesn't mean a thing. You're gonna take you're gonna take suggestions from anybody. And that's what's so refreshing. Now, one thing I've always said about Purus is you folks have absolutely what I call close the loop here. Okay. I don't know of any other company that's done this. You folks own the genetics. You, you, you have your farmer network that plants those genetics. They raise those genetics. They're brought back to your facilities. You process, you package, and away we go to the consumer. That is bar none, closing the loop. You are in total control, total transparency. So when did, that, when did this vision of this massive vertical integration come into play? Oh, I think, I think that was always the vision um, okay. of my dad. Like, that's been his... That's been his like true north is that if you want to make these radical changes, you have to create a market and you can only create a market if you control the supply and can really get to that product and in, into the hands of the consumer. Because if you're relying on other people in these kind of transformational changes, then you're putting all of your hopes and dreams in the hands of someone else. Yeah. And in the time, in the time that we were coming, you know, that our business was growing, no one else was talking about this. So that was really not a, a strong proposition. Um, and today it's, it's a, we also came through the age of now GMOs are in the supply chain. So you need IP, you need traceability if you want to be able to service the customers in the non-GMO organic supply chain. So right. our infrastructure was built with that in mind. And, and today there's a lot of value for our customers as well so that they can differentiate the, themselves on the shelf. You know, if they're competing against a, a commodity type uh, product, they can be somewhat differentiated because they can make claims that others can't to support the value. Because really, for us, the way we think about it is how can we how can we create as much value as possible per acre? And and we're we're not there yet. We haven't done it. We're definitely not perfect, but we're trying, and we're going to keep trying over the next thirty years to make it even better. But if we can create more value for each acre then there's more to share with everyone. And ultimately we can make products on market that a consumer doesn't have to always pay more to get a better quality product. Like eventually it can become more standard where that's, that's just what products are. Right. So as a result of this, you folks have, have started what you call Purist Pantry. Yeah. And you've got uh, an online presence, an online retail market there. Um, Talk a little bit about that. I know you've got you've got some unique products in there, and there's one I want you to really talk about. Um, uh, is it Lupin's? Lupin? Yeah, so Lupin is a little bit different, but I'll, so today for Purist, um, we sell 
most of our business is what I call B2B. So as Rick, as you explained, like we, we have our genetics, uh, we sell seeds to growers and then we buy back the contract and we process them in our plants. We have soy, we have soy plants and we have pea plants and they do different things. But in our pea protein business, we sell mostly B2B by the truckload. So mass quantities. But as we, you know, we've taken the same approach that my dad took on the genetic side in the ingredient processing side, really thinking about how can we make products that bring, that really solve a challenge of a food maker. So the functional ingredients that can create really awesome products. Um, but, but then also that they can translate the values of our supply chain also to the customer. But at the same time, we get, we, over time, we got a lot of questions from kitchen people, you know, cooks who like, Hey, I want to use your products at my house. We're, we're saying, well, you don't want 2000 pounds, do you? Cause we only sell it at a tote. So we, we started the Pierce pantry. It's um, just a small online thing, but we're continuing to even move farther up the supply chain and, and bring products to market too, not just ingredients, but products. And that's, what's really exciting. As I think about the future for our company is how can we, how can we pull the values of, of our system, our growers, and really authentically take them to products where they're not diluted maybe with other parts of the supply chain where you, you have to compromise on the, on the, the things that you can say about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, what else I like about this pantry is you will, you will have a, a little short 30 second video on how to make, make, make something and, and bake it in your own oven yeah. with your product. So that, that alone helps. Now you're going to have to educate me and the audience here on lupins. What give, give me some more detail on this. So sweet lupin is another legume. So similar to soy pea, it's a legume grown in, in various areas. So um, the lupin is interesting for the market because of its high protein and high fiber content. Mm. So it has, it does have oil. So it's, it's more like a soybean than it is a pea. But when you make it into a flour, it's got a low net carb score. So for people looking for lower carbohydrate diets, whether it's keto or others, it's a really, um, it's an interesting product. It's very new, so it doesn't have a lot of traction. So it's yeah. kind of for, um, it's, it's more for our early adopters at this point. So we're doing a lot of work trying to figure out how it can work, but we see, we think that it'll play a role in, in food in the future. But I think for, um, you know, I sometimes forget because I live in a world of plant-based foods all day, every day, that not everyone is as exposed to it as, as I am. And I guess my advice or my ask to the audience would be to just give various foods a try. They've come a long way since the nineties. And I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of back and forth on, on what's the most sustainable types of protein and, and plant-based foods, Franken food and all these things. And it's, it's not, and it's not all things are not, are not that there's, there's so such a big gradient. And I know like the type of processing that we do to our yellow field piece to get them into a, a format where you can use them in food and it's, it's water and, and pressure. And like, that's all it really is. And just putting it through pipes, no, no different than a lot of other types of processing. And it might feel different or scary, but it's all it is doing is taking the, the parts of the pea and, and putting them into usable, usable formats. Um, no different than, you know, starch that we've grown up with our entire life. Yeah. I think that's very important because I think when someone looks at a, a plant-based protein, the first thought is, oh my gosh, that's a highly processed 
who knows what chemicals they're adding to that process and you've just explained you're not adding anything to it except good old h2o and a little bit of pressure so, yeah I think the highly processed is uh can be sometimes a red herring because highly processed doesn't doesn't equivalent to not nutritious yeah all of the time sometimes it can so again it's like nothing is ever one thing or the other i think it's there's so much nuance in food in general and being processed sometimes is a function of food safety. There's a lot of, there's a lot of food safety requirements and we have, you have to do things. I saw someone put whole food plant-based. I think no one would argue the most nutritious diet is going to be, you know, whole vegetables, fruits, nuts, legumes, you know, grains. That is the most healthy diet. And right. if everyone would eat like that, that we would all be in a much better place. We'd get the right amount of fiber. We would all be healthier. The challenge is that doesn't happen. And I think doctors can tell us to, to change our diets and it still doesn't happen. So what we also need to consider is how can we meet people closer to where they're at, where we can help make incremental better choices, both for health and for the environment. Right. And I want to stay here on, I want to stay right here on this topic, but I, we had just had a question. Are these peas grown in a monoculture? Now I'm going to, I'm going to give my answer. Then I want you to give yours. Um, I'm going to say yes and no. There are situations where they are grown by themselves, but now what we are trying to do on our farm is we are trying to commingle cash crops in the, the most creative ways we possibly can and currently we are raising peas into wheat. I think you can raise peas into barley, triticale, uh, maybe not cereal rye. Cereal rye gets pretty aggressive in, in the later stages of its life and it can absolutely smother another crop out. Uh, we are also gonna be planting peas with corn for, for two, two ways. Uh, fuel for the corn, the nitrogen source for the corn that these peas are creating. I mean, nitrogen, it's 78% of what we breathe. We've got to take advantage of that. And then the second way is uh, we're going to plant corn, a short stature corn and the peas at the same time. And we're going to harvest those two together and see how we get along. So that's my answer to that question. What's yours, Nicole? I would say generally, yes. Um, but I do what the way that we're trying to find ways to use peas is in uh, more diverse cropping rotations. So instead of, of a fallow having peas, so you're getting more ground coverage, more um, soil, help with soil erosion and finding to use them in different ways because they're short season crops. So they have some flexibility in how they can be used. Uh, we are bringing them into a food, like a food grade process. So we have to be cognizant of contamination from allergens or other things, because at the end of the day, we're using this for food. So we have to put the peas through food grade cleaning, take out all anything that's not a pea before we can process it. So there's, there's um, trade-offs, I think, to all of these things. But what we are trying to find ways for peas to be added to rotations that maybe are, you know, single crop, corn on corn on corn, or corn and soybean uh, rotations. And so if we can even add another crop in there, that's going to help add some diversity. Again, is it perfect? No. But is it a step in the right direction? Probably. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to expand on that a little bit. So let's assume that we we planted peas and you could do this either in the fall now or, or early in the spring. 
We're going to harvest these peas for the most part around that first, second week of July, or maybe the last week of June, first week of July. So you now have that opportunity. If you wanted to, you could A, plant like a 90-day corn. You could plant a Milo. I mean, there's a lot of things you could plant here that are going to require some nitrogen. So now, you know, everything that, that we do here, I don't know how to gather the nitrogen information from the below ground because I, I don't know you don't get all the roots from that plant you don't get the whole picture now we know it's fixing nitrogen so when you look at this uh i personally have seen on our farm peas approaching 200 pounds of available nitrogen now that's that's unbelievable and that and the other thing that's amazing about this is that is a stable nitrogen source now it's organic and it's stable within that profile. So if you don't use it up now, we're gonna get the benefit of it for the next cash crop in the following uh, growing season. So there's just so many avenues you can go with this pea concept, way beyond processing it for just protein. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think we're, we're just starting to understand the potential of some of these new diverse crops because we, we grow, a lot of a very few things in the United States. And we think about, you know, I think about peas a lot. There's a million acres grown in the United States. That's in the grand scheme of things, not that much. Mm-hmm. And so, and most of these acres are in the Northern Plains where they don't have their growing season is it's much more restricted. And so their ability to do double crops or any of these kind of more um, interesting concepts is, is less. So what, uh, what my dad did early in our program is adapt our peas for warmer environments. So bring some disease tolerance to them. So our breeding, one of our breeding locations is in Southeast Iowa, very disease heavy area. And then also you have the the pressure changes with the thunderstorms and yeah, the heat, you know, it can be cool. And then the next week it can be hundred degrees and being able to reset their flowers when they get really hot. So what that has enabled us is to think more creatively on how with these added traits, like how else could peas be used? And we've seen similar things to you, Rick, where, where peas not taken all the way to maturity actually have left enough nitrogen to give 200 bushel corn. Now it's, it's anecdotal and just trials, but it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And man, I'd love to, you know, my, my dream would be to see uh, peas and other legumes and, and really take a bite out of the synthetic nitrogen market. Like right. that's, that's where I'd like to see the decrease come. Yeah, and uh, you know, just for easy math, let's just assume nitrogen is a dollar a unit, right? It's close. It's not quite there, but for easy math, so if we could uh, grow these peas, and then a, you're taking the pea, you know, you take that pea crop off. Let's let's just let's go that way first. Yep. So you're getting income on that acre from raising that pea. Now, yes, we've we've probably lost some of that nitrogen based on letting that go to final maturity, which is creating that seed. I get that. But let's just take 60 units of in, just 60, and let's decrease our synthetic load by 60 pounds. That 60 pounds uh, that that pea has produced at a dollar a pound is $60 an acre. So it's unbelievable what, when you really sit down and put this down on a piece of paper, what this can truly mean to your bottom line. 
And the other thing I like about the PE here, Nicole, is the fact that we can move this north very easily because we've widened out our window of when we can plant these peas. In Indiana, okay, I'm in West Central Indiana. I'm right uh, across from Champaign, Illinois. Everybody knows where Champaign, Illinois is. Just come east end Indiana. Um, we planted peas the last two years in the month of December. So just think what this could do for all the northern states that run out of time to plant a clover or a vetch because it's gotten too cold. That's, I mean, Nicole, there's just, I don't know, 20 things I can easily think of that this pea has that kind of flexibility. And, and you don't see that with very many crops. Yeah, I think the, it's, it's exciting. It's also can a little bit be overwhelming because where do you start? And yeah. I think there's, you know, growers like yourself that are willing to try and and fail to figure it out. And what we're trying to do is do some of that work on our own, just even in cropping systems to give growers a little bit more confidence on different ways it can work because it's, it's not, it's, there's a lot of optionality, but it's not fail proof at all. And right. so like they, they do, they can, they can fail. They do need water. I mean, this, this last year was really tough for peas. Um, in the upper plains because they got they got no water during germination. So the you know overall production in the US was severely, severely shocked. Um, but that's also why we think diversification of you know growing regions is important. So we're growing peas down uh, right now in the Mississippi Delta, where they can grow them, you know, in the essentially winter time mm -hmm. and as a nitrogen source going into their their summer crops. So really looking at different ways that they can be used and with the effort and with the intention of if you can prove out the nitrogen piece of it and actually love, like take that into the next crop and, and actually reduce the nitrogen that you apply, then there's an economic benefit there on top of the production. Right. That's exactly right. So, okay. So next question then, are you, are you always looking for, for new growers? Is that, is that out there at all times? Pretty much all the time looking for new growers. So we, our um, business, so we have uh, been expanding our production capabilities on the processing side over the past uh, eight or nine years, pretty significantly. And this past year, we're um, very excited. So we're the we're the largest manufacturer today of pea protein in North America. Mm. And which is, it's crazy just thinking like where, where we started, but it's, um, we're not, we don't do it on our own. So we, in 2018, we formed uh, a JV with Cargill. They invested in our, in our business to help us increase our plant capacity. These plants are expensive and our family definitely couldn't do that on our own. So they've been a great partner. And with that investment, we were able to uh, commission a second uh, facility that was in Western Minnesota. It was another shutdown plant in a, in a small rural town. And we've invested in that facility, um, recommissioned it to be a protein plant. So it's one of the largest in North America today. And with that, we've more than doubled our capacity. So we're adding more growers um, to grow peas. We do non-GMO and organic uh, peas, and we were always trying to grow our organic base and are really cognizant of of imported organics and how that affects the market dynamics because we're uh, focused on a domestic supply and bringing, showing the value of that on the market too. And so yeah. there's a lot of different, different areas that we're working on. So 
just quickly, Nicole, go through the locations where you are in the United States and just briefly what each location does, if you would, please. Yeah. So in our pea business, we have four locations. We have two grain delivery points. Uh, one is in Southeast Iowa. It's a town called Oskaloosa. That's where our, that was our first location where, where I'm from. And then we also have a delivery point in Harold, uh, South Dakota, which is about 30 minutes outside of Pierre. So it's um, right in the center, center of the state. Mm -hmm. The these are brought into those facilities. They take out the rocks, sticks, and stems and take out the outside hull, which is made into pea hull fiber. And that's used in food. It's used in some industrial applications. It's also used in animal feed. The inside of the pea, the meat, is turned into a flour. And then it goes to our, our uh, protein processing plants. We have one in Turtle Lake, Wisconsin. So the upper west side of the state, and then our newer one in Western Minnesota in Dawson. And there the, the pea flour is added to water and you separate out the components. So you end up with a protein, a fiber, and a starch. The protein- um, Okay, the protein uh, hang on, Nicole. I'm gonna stop you right there real quick. Okay, go list a little bit deeper on this. What are the three products you're pulling out? It's- So peas are a pulse. So they are their legume, but they're a pulse. So they're not they're not an oil seed. So they have protein, fiber, and starch. Okay. So they have more, they have about 50% starch, about 20 to 25% protein, and the rest is uh fat or is um fiber and oil. And so it's similar actually to kind of a, a mix of a soybean and a corn. So you got the starch like in corn, you got the protein like in soybean. So, so you've got buyers for, I mean, there's sectors of the food industry that want that starch. There's sectors that want that protein and want that fiber. Yeah. And we had to do a lot of the market building in North America for some of that, because when we first started this, there wasn't, they, they didn't exist. So we've had to do the work to build those mark to build those markets. Um, but yeah, they go into all sorts of products. They go into food, feed, um, even industrial looking for, you know, lower carbon sources of starches that are used in things like packaging and mm. uh, packing materials. But uh, from there, the, the products are, they go to both local and, and companies across the, the United States to turn them into great food products. Uh, and we also have two soybean uh, delivery points, one in Wilmington, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago, where we do non-GMO and organic uh, soybeans, and then one in Randolph, Minnesota, just south of the Twin Cities that also does uh, specialty soy. We do um, natto, tofu, miso, um, and organic um, soybeans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the it's just amazing. I mean, there's so many things that I'm unaware of, like that you, you mentioned, you know, use some of your products go to like packaging material. I mean, I never would have thought thought that but when you then start to realize the the industry is crying for you know we need sustainable we need regenerative how is this food being processed how do we shrink in, uh, or shrink our carbon footprint and again the pea just rises up there's so many things that this pea can do it's it's I'm, I'm so glad you're on the show today because we're learning so much about it's more than just protein there's way more than that actually that's something that we say a lot is everyone wants to talk about protein it's like there's the, the crop we need to think about the entire crop and how we're finding value from all pieces because if we're only ever focused on the protein 
that is, that's, that's not enough. And it ultimately doesn't make for a system that's sustainable if you're only using one piece of it. So we've put, we've put a lot of diff, a lot of focus into building the value streams for the other, the other products, the starches and the fibers. And, you know, as I mentioned, like we're, we're at the beginning of this journey. If you think about the, the dairy industry making cheese, you know, they had a bunch of co-products or byproducts that were land applied or, or given away or dumped or whatever. Right. And then over time, they found value in those streams. And now you have whey protein and you have all these other offtakes. Like the, the plant-based industry is going through that same evolution. Um, likely it'll go a little bit faster, taking the lessons learned from other industries. But it's really like, how again, how can you get maximum value from the crop so that when we're using our resources to grow things, that we're not wasting it? And there's, as you mentioned, there's a lot of food waste and there's things that we can do on the farming and the processing side. There's a lot of food waste that happens though from the, the point of sale or even in distribution. That is also a big area of focus for the industry that um, Purist isn't touching, but is something that is, is a real problem too. Right. You know, I wanna go back just a little bit. You know, I threw out that one scenario that if you raised peas, you could harvest them there in that first week in July and do a second crop. But if you are willing to not do that, it now opens up an opportunity because I'm always thinking, you're thinking peas, I'm thinking cover crops and yep. soil health and all that. Now is your opportunity to put that massive warm season cocktail out following those peas and let that cocktail soak everything up that those peas brought, brought to the profile and store it. And now you really got a jump start on next year's next cash crop. So. There's just so many ways you can look at at that at the benefit of that. Um, I'm going to answer another question that was just brought up a moment ago. Do we have to set our combines differently to harvest peas? The answer is no. It's very similar to a, a soybean setting. Um, uh, you just need to to get get it set and get your sample as clean as you possibly can. Now there are two ways to to look at the harvest. One way is to go out and just combine the peas straight away when they mature. That would be ideal in a higher uh, elevation where you possibly won't get a rain event that, that could uh, hamper uh, harvest. But the second way you can harvest these peas is you can swath them, let them air dry in the, in the windrow, and then come back with a pickup head and pick those peas up. So again, a very versatile type uh, species to think about incorporating into your operation. So, you know, one of the things too that we struggle with today, Nicole, is is uh, transportation. So, too many times we want to look for markets that are just in our back door, but that's not the way this world is anymore. Uh, the logistics has to. I mean, right now we are hauling corn. Uh, 100 miles one way and we're bringing peas to, to Pierce at Wilmington is I think is 120 miles one way. That's just the way things are going to need to be done now. Uh, we can't always have uh, a Pierce or a Cargill in our back door. So um, I know you folks try, you help tremendously with transportation. You've got that network. Talk just a little bit about the logistics side of it. Yeah, this is, we recognize that this is one of the challenges and it's, I think, a part of growing a new, a new thing is that you don't have the existing infrastructure that exists in the commodity system today. And that's a challenge and it's a barrier. Um, and we'll, I think over time, that will start to, that'll start to change. 
Uh, so what we do um, within our system, again, it's food grade crops. So there's, there's a lot of requirements that we have around quality and allergen contamination. And this is uh, a big, a big challenge for us. So we do, uh, we do buyer call, buyers call contracts, but if a grower either doesn't have uh, their own trucking or don't want to deal with it, our team sets up, manages the logistics. We have our own uh, fleet of trucks. And so we can do, we'll come pick them up and take care of that uh, because we have to deliver them into our plants. Our plants run pretty much 24 seven. And so it's, uh, it's an everyday kind of a thing. We have a call at 745 every morning to talk about inbound logistics at all the plants and what the challenges are. And when there's, you know, a, a blizzard in Nebraska, that changes things. And so that's, it's, it's an everyday thing for us. And while it's complicated, it's part of the, part of the gig. Right. Yeah. It's so true. Um, all right. So Curus was voted the most innovative food company of 2021 by fast company magazine. Talk, I mean, that's gotta be, that's gotta just, your dad had to have just been grinning from ear to ear when that, when you guys were uh, awarded that award. So talk about that. Yeah, I think part of the the innovation is the system, the systems approach. And, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't feel that innovative to us because we've been doing it for my entire life. And it's just part of our DNA. So we forget to talk about it sometimes, but that kind of system played into that, that award. But we're, I think we took like a moment to be happy about it. And then the next moment it's like back on the grind. Like, how do we, how do we scale this business to, to make it meaningful so we can partner with more people. Um, but we do take a lot of, we put a lot of energy into making products that are differentiated on market. And that means that they have great quality, they have great taste, that they're going to be different than our competitors that are maybe coming in from other countries. And you know, we're asking our brands to pay a premium price because they're they're buying from a system that's that's fully domestic. We want to make sure that they're getting value for that. And so uh, we do that through our ingredients, but then also through other foods that we create. So when you take that whole systems approach. I think that's what the FASCO award was, was really how to, we're, we're addressing the, the market side by innovation in food and products, but then also in the system side through how can we, how can we design a system that addresses so many of these challenges that uh, the food industry faces today? Yeah. And, and, and Nicole, it's amazing the parallels here from what you're describing, the systems approach is exactly what what we're doing on our farm and, and other regenerative farmers. It's a systematic approach to this 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 different system or different way of looking at things. You know, it's only you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with, and you're only as good as that weakest link in the chain. So you have to have these systems in place that that fulfill not only the needs of the consumer, but it's fulfilling the needs of the processor, you know, the packaging, everything that, that's, that's part of the process. So it's amazing the, the parallel. Now I want to move, I want to move to health now. Okay. And I want to, I want to talk human health here because, and I'm going to give just a little brief story about my human health. Um, my bad habits of when I when I was away from home, I mean, when I was home, my wife, my beautiful wife, Carol, would make the, the, the meals that I should be eating, 
but I go on the road, I do, I talk, I do whatever, and I drink Mountain Dew and I drink Coke and, and I eat carbs and I, I, it's terrible. Well, as a result of all that, I'm a type two diabetic now. So now you put the brakes on and you're like, whoa, hang on here. There's nothing more important now on the plate than your health. Cause now I, it's jeopardized. So when you start down this road of figuring this things out, one of the things that we immediately popped to the surface were protein shakes and protein shakes are being sourced from pea protein. So I want you to talk about this. I know you, you've got a, a product that you are extremely proud of high profile individual go into this, this health side of the equation now. Yeah, well, I think health is, it's a complicated topic. So I don't, I don't think there's any, you know, again, there's no one silver no. bullet for anyone, but I think it's, it's true that we as a population don't need enough fiber and, you know, plant-based foods, whole foods, they deliver a lot of that. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefits to whole, whole food diets. However, there's also a lot of people who have within their own bodies, they have uh, sensitivities to various things. And a lot of proteins that we consume on a regular basis can actually be, um, we can have allergies to them and they might not manifest in the way that, you know, you think of an allergic reaction, but can actually be internal and cause challenges within your gut. And so I think with, you know, peas are an option. They're an alternative for that and is a, a, a protein shake all day, every day. The only thing you ever eat is that, is that healthy for you? I think that's, it's not the healthiest diet in the world. Um, right moderation is key to everything, but it can solve, it can be a good uh, source of nutrition as part of, of a well-rounded diet. So we, as part of our just business, you know, we, we sell pea protein and we are really proud of our protein. We've, we've done a lot to make it taste amazing and have good mouthfeel and all the things that you would expect in a, in a product. And we have, uh, we did do a partnership with, with Tom Brady uh, for his protein uh, shakes. And so we were really excited. We did launch that, I think two years ago when he won the Super Bowl. And then he went to the Bucks and I think won the Super Bowl again, which was pretty cool. But now he's retired. So I don't know how much protein shakes he's going to be eating anymore, but maybe he'll, he'll still promote them. But they're, well, it's, a really, it's a really great product. And so we were proud of that. But that's just one example. We work with so many brands who are doing amazing things. Um, and some that are really leaning into the organic side too, which we're always really excited about because that's uh, the brands that are wanting to talk about organic proteins and traceability to where they're sourced. Like that's what it's all about to us. And those are the, the partners that we really want to lean into and support because it's getting back to um, kind of our, our, our thesis of how, how we envisioned our, our business to be. Yeah. And for the folks listening out there, the product that Nicole was referring to is called TB12, TB12. Tom Brady 12. And, and she's being too modest here. I mean, she created, uh, she created the ingredients that are in this package that helped Tom perform at the at the massive peak level that he performs at. I mean, the guy's 40, 42 years old and he is, well, he's retired. He says he's retired, but, but still playing. I can't imagine. I can't imagine being out there ready to take a hike and every player on the other side of that line wants to kill you. So, it's it's quite an accomplishment for you and your company to be part of that uh, of that program. And I think you may have also done one for Drew Brees as well. So again, yeah. that, that, one, that one isn't isn't quite coming yet. So more to come on that one in the future. But I think 
for, for us, we're just really excited about the opportunity to partner with lots of different people in the space to bring great products to market. Because I think what's true is anyone who eats food, if it's bad, you're not going to eat it again, no matter how, I mean, you might suffer if it's really, really healthy for you, but most people won't. So food needs to taste good because first, you know, it's, it's, it's sustenance, but food's also part of our culture and our emotions and our, our value systems. It's, it's triggering memories. It's so much more than just nutrition that we want it to be a great experience. And if, if plant-based foods can't be that, then they, then they can't grow. So we, have taken a lot of effort into making it taste great because if it tastes great, at least it has a fighting chance. Yeah, that's a very good point. You know, it's amazing what your nose can do for you. If you feel good when you eat that food, you're going to do it again. Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. Uh, and I want to back up just a little bit about my health situation. Yes, I've added protein shakes and supplements. That's that's just part of the diet. I've reduced carbs, reduced sugar, more balanced diet. Uh, moderation, like you said, um, and exercise. So I didn't want to throw out that all I'm doing is eating protein shakes. It's it's way beyond that. It's just part of the new diet now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of there is a lot of um, debate around. You know, is a plant based burger healthier than a than an, a beef burger? And mm-hmm. I don't know that that's even the right conversation because neither one of those are healthy. Um, so we're kind of, it's, it's semantics at that point. And if, if we're talking about health, there's, there's a ton of really quality nutrition out there. And I think the, the group, you know, people who are focusing on regenerative ag, that's not just row crops. I mean, it's, it's so much more, it's, it's vegetables and produce and all yeah. of these other things. And can we get more, um, micronutrients into our food? Because beyond protein, it's all the micronutrients that we need for full rounded health. And I think that's just an, an area of, of study that's still coming out, you know, and the, how the microbiome of the soil affects the microbiome of the food and how that affects our own guts and all of this like soil gut connection. Um, there's so much that's happening in that space right now, which is really exciting. And I think we, we know um, what we know now is going to just be such a, a sliver of what we're going to learn over the future that it's, I think it'll be, it'll be eye-opening and it'll, it'll start to change how we think about what we're doing to the soil and how that ultimately manifests itself in our health. And it's maybe not tied to the macro nutrition, but the micronutrition. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I always go back to say, you can't have human health until we have soil health first. So um, exactly. Totally agree. Okay, we've got a question from the audience here. Have you folks at Purus done any nutrient density testing on peas and soybeans? And if so, which one, you know, give us just a brief outlook of each one of those, those uh, species. Yeah, so we do, we do uh, nutrient testing. We don't do like full profile all the time because it's cost prohibitive, but, you know, pr- macro, new, macro, the macro are very important to our selection process because as a processor, um, our end customers, that's what's important to them too. So we do think a lot about, I mean, one, selecting our varieties that can um, bring to the table the most of those nutrition aspects that we're looking for. But then also we've started to do more studies on the different types of cropping systems and soil types and how that lends itself into the nutritional density of the product. And I will say that that's, um, it's interesting. It's really hard to get 
uh, data that is super clean because there's so many variables. And so we don't have, I would say, any super indicative information yet because our growing our growing locations are very diverse. And so um, I think that's an opportunity that we still need to dig into. I think there's a lot of science out there that's um, becoming pretty clear that, you know, in different types of farming, you know, regenerative, low-till, all of that, you can get a lot more uh, micronutrients in the food, which I think ultimately is where we're going to need to go. And there's that science is catching up to everything else, um, but it's coming. And I think that's a really exciting, you know, the Bionutrient Association, I think is the name. They're doing some really interesting work. And we'll start to show not only from a planetary benefit, some of these uh, regenerative egg practices, but also from a health benefit and being able to actually tie the, the soil health to the food and the difference in the food is going to be so important to showing that, that value creation. Yeah, I totally agree. So good, very good stuff here. Um, you know, I've seen a little bit of chatter about, uh, we were talking about the, the, the hamburger or, or a protein based, and it's not neither one of those standalone or are that healthy. I think, I think we need to explain ourselves a little bit better here. It's more of a balanced diet, I think is what you were referring to. So just talk just a little bit more about that. We've got a little bit of chatter. One of the questions was, why isn't a grass-fed beef burger healthy for you? I don't think you were trying to say it's not. It was just you need a more rounded diet, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, if if anyone, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian, so I guess it's right. clear. <laughs> um, I, I think that if you only eat one thing, it's not, that's never going to be good for you. So, you know, everything in moderation. However, there's, there's a lot, um, my previous life, uh, before I came back to work up here, is I actually work in the medical device industry. And the, the disease that we were working on treating was atherosclerosis. So plaque buildup in your legs. So essentially a heart attack, but in your legs. And so it prevents blood from flowing to your lower extremities and which can lead to gangrene, eventually um, amputation and, and that with that like loss of quality of life very steeply. And there's um, a lot of interventions that can, that can address that. These interventions treat, they treat the issue, but they do not cure the issue. And there is a lot of science and data coming out that your, that your choices of what you eat and limiting red meat consumption can actually start to reverse these things not just treat, but reverse. So plaque buildup in your, in your neck and your carotid artery can lead to aneurysms in your legs can lead to um, loss of function of your legs in your heart, of course, can lead to a heart attack. And these things do manifest themselves through your dietary choices. And there's a lot that you can do just through what you eat to not only stop, but actually reverse this mm -hmm. and plant-based diets have, have a role to play in that. And so, like I said, I'm not, I'm not an, I'm not an expert at this. This is just my own curiosity and, and my own reading, but there is, there is a connection between what you eat and what's in it, whether it's cholesterol, saturated fat, whatever, um, and how that affects your body. Mm -hmm. So is one hamburger going to ruin your life? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But I think it's that it's striving to find balance. And when there's choices that can be better for you and better for the planet. Can we start making those more often? Cause that's going to be a net benefit to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for, for clarifying that. I think we needed to do that. 
Um, I'm, not, I'm not actually seeing watching the chat, so I'm a little nervous. Yeah, I'm trying. It's hard. My eyes can't see very good anymore, but it, I just saw a little bit of traffic, but that's okay. We've taken care of that. Um, next thing I want to talk about is the ag sector industry, whatever you want to call it, is predominantly male-based, okay? And you know, you've got to be excited about the fact that you're a woman, you're a CEO, can expand on that if you would, because I think this is very important. I think we need to have more women in positions of strength like you were in. So, so please give me your thoughts on that. Um, well, I'm, I'm very excited to be a woman. So to answer your first question, am I excited about that? Yep. Love being female, but in all seriousness, I think I, um, it kind of goes back to how we were raised. I mean, we were raised as, as a family unit that was out to, to build something. And I never once ever thought I could be anything less than whatever I wanted to be. That was just the way our, our parents raised us. And as long as we worked hard, we could be whatever we wanted. Mm -hmm. So I think I am definitely, I benefit from that as a, to your, to your point, um, to be a female in a, in a male dominated space. But in the moment in time we're in, it's, I don't have the same barriers that people had maybe as little as 10 years ago. There's been a lot of that barrier breaking has happened. And, and I'm just, I guess, thankful for everyone who's come before. I've, I've met, I met a, a woman a couple months ago who was a key in kind of the biotech uh, industry 40 years ago. And when she said 40 years ago, I was like, how in the world did you do it? Because mm -hmm. um, we're in a different time. But I think Key, key things that are needed in, in all industries to be successful in growth is diversity of thought. And diversity of thought comes from different experiences, having different perspectives and being open and receptive to that. And whether you're uh, a, a woman or a male or you know whatever, like as long as you're open to others' opinions, I think that's what we need. So I've been super fortunate. I've never felt that I had anything holding me back. And I feel like that's my, um, the, my advantage, but what do you call it? There's a word for it. I'm missing. I'm not thinking of, but that's probably something that I'm really fortunate to have. And that's came from my parents. Yeah. And then I am also an athlete. So I grew up playing sports and I think that also helps, you know, when you're, when you're able to compete and have a little bit of a thicker skin. Yeah. It makes a difference. It, it makes a real difference. It prepares you for where you are today. So, yeah. I think so, we're still, there's still a lot more diversity needed in agriculture, though, and um, getting more, you know, on farm, too. Like, there, there's still very little diversity. And so, I, you know, for, for Purus, again, we can't solve everything, and we don't try to. But when we can be, um, you know, represent, if I, if I can represent the females on stage with panels of all males all the time, which is typically what it is, I'm happy to do so. And uh, hopefully that inspires other younger females that they can also have a role in, as a leader in the industry and that they, they stick with it. That's very important. I, so I agree 100%. Thank you. Um, Okay, now I think we're headed toward the home stretch here. Let's talk about the future. Where do you see Purus? You know, five years out, ten years out. Uh, what what are you what are you thinking? Great question. I mean, we are every day working to to grow our business into the demand that exists today. 
um, for the types of products that we made, we make, and it's, it's a battle. It's hard. We're, it's really hard things, um, to start up these new, these new technologies. Um, at the same time, expanding our, our acreage footprint and bringing new growers and, and solving challenges. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about with, with peas and even not just peas, but a lot of these crops that were, that were, that are interesting in regenerative systems, they don't have the same government support, you know, through right. whether it's insurance or subsidies or risk management or, you know, all of the things that conventional ag has built over the, over the decades, they don't exist in all crops. And so we're trying to figure out how can, how can we solve that and through different programs. So we're going to, we'll figure that out. We'll figure it out over the next five years. So five years, I hope that we've solved that where there's one less barrier to adding uh, a new crop into rotation is that you can get some sort of risk management uh, with that. So five years, I think we'll have solved that. I, I want to see peas grow and expand in how they're used throughout the United States and, and not just in the upper plains, but in other areas and in cropping systems like you're talking, Rick. And we'll have developed and shown different use cases for these types of crops and other types of foods. And I think plant-based foods is continuing to grow, organic foods continuing to grow, and they're going to continue to find um, their ways into our, our food system. And I hope and I uh, plan for purists to, to play a role in that. Yeah, and I'll tell you what else I like about about Pierce. Um, you've got so many good people that work for your company, first of all, but everyone is is concerned about the well-being of that that farmer growing your crop. I mean, I don't know how many phone calls I get, you know, people making sure I've done this, I've done that. You can't put, remember Rick, you can't put those beans in a bin that had, or those peas in a bin that had soybeans in them last year. I mean, all these things, take place at all times throughout the growing season because well first of all you folks need that product but you you also are concerned about the livelihood of your farmer and your farmer network so um it's very refreshing and and i'm very thankful to to be building a relationship with your company um you know it 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 just it, it all goes back to to that family, how you were raised, how you were part of the family. Your father gave you and your brother, you know, uh, duties to do. You had to do things at certain times. I'm sure you couldn't. You, you said you, you both were athletes. I'm sure you couldn't go to practice unless you did this, this and this. No, we so, would go to practice after we would do all the field work and yeah. our friends would be doing fun stuff and we'd be planting in the heat and then go to baseball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. It's just so, so wholesome. So, you know, uh, again, I, I thank you for being on the show today. This has been quite an honor. Uh, do you have any closing comment uh, that you would like to, to get out here? Well, I, I think you've said so many wonderful things and uh, I appreciate that. We definitely are not perfect and we try to have a continuous improvement mindset because we're, we're learning as we're as we're doing sometimes too, and um, so I, I think those those who have worked with us in the past, uh, we're trying to get better, and we're looking. We're always taking advice, and every day we're like, how can we make it better than it was yesterday? Yeah. Um, we're we're growing, but um, if people are are interested in in adding um, different types of crops or working with us, like we are always open and looking for more people to work with us. And my parting words would be to. Um, 
keep your mind open to different types of food, because I think in, in the future, uh, proteins will come from all different sorts of places and we won't qualify them quite as much. It'll just be, um, our meal and we'll hopefully have created a, a system that's a bit more sustainable and soil that's a bit, bit healthier. Okay, very good. So purist.com, that gets folks to where they need to get to to find this information? Uh, yep, and my email is my first initial and my last name. So natchison at purist.com. So you can also just email me if you want. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram, although it's just pictures of my kids. So it's not that educational, but if you like really cute six and five-year-olds, it's also a great account. All right. Well, Nicole, thank you so much. Again, this has been great. I, I really appreciate the interaction from the audience. We had several questions there came from the audience. Um, folks, next week is Ryan Ciroli. Uh, he's going to be with us from Cargill. So it will be a blast to, to, to visit with Ryan again. Um, uh, Nicole, thank you so much. Everyone have a great week and we'll, we'll see you next Thursday. Thank you. And it, our, our fixed time now is going to be 6.30 Central time, 7.30 Eastern, 6.30 Central is going to now be the time slot for all future presentations. Nicole, thank you. Thank you, Rick. Everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. See you next time. Bye.